Let me see if I get the text right here. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into then what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, and that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then, and when Paul had laid hands on them, they, they re, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all, and he entered into the synagogue for three months, and spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading the Jews about the kingdom of God. But some, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, they started speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I want you to circle that in your Bibles. And what God had been doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs of aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus uh, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, come out of them. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit <clears throat> was then leaped upon them and mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known all over all the residents of Ephesus, both to the Jews and to the Greeks. And all the fear came upon all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. I pray that as we open up your word and hear what your text has to say to us, that you would help me speak it accurately and clearly and boldly today. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. All right. Well, today I want to let you know that we are starting our series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, and uh, I think it's going to be a really amazing series. It's got six chapters in it. And uh, it's going to tackle some really, really hard, and, uh, hard issues for us and speak into it, and I'm really excited to hear what God has to say to us before, uh, before uh, reading his word. But before we get into the actual book of Ephesians, I thought it actually might be a crucial, uh, a, a crucial uh, a step for us to actually take some time and learn about the story of the Ephesians church. Paul spent two years 
in the city of Ephesus planting this church. It's the longest that Paul spent anywhere, actually, uh, planting a church. And usually what would happen is when Paul would go out uh, doing missionary work, he would come to a city and he would tell people about Jesus. He would say, you need Jesus, and you need Jesus, and you need Jesus, and we're all broken. And then people would come to believe, and he would gather them together, and he would start a church, and he would make sure that there was leadership, and then he would take off. And it was kind of like the suit. He would just come in, preach the gospel, make sure that there was a group of believers together, and then leave. He was a very kind of in-and-out kind of guy. But when he comes to Ephesians, he actually takes the most amount of time there. And so what I want to do today is I just want to do two things. I want to tell you the story of the Ephesian church, what happened there, and I just want to, I just want to hit, uh, ask the question, why did Paul stay so long in Ephesus? And why should you and I care about it today? Because there is a reason why he stood there, stayed there for as long as he did. And there is a reason why it's important for us today to know that. So to answer that, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about what Ephesus was like. And to help illustrate that, I was trying to think of what kind of city uh, Ephesus could be compared to, compared to. And I could think of a lot of American cities, but I was trying to think of a Canadian city and that became a little bit hard for me, but uh, I want to share with you uh, a picture, that, a Christmas gift that I got Liz of the city of Vancouver. Okay? Does everyone see that? Everyone go, ooh. Ah. Ah. Look at those mountains. Aren't those beautiful? Now, this is where Liz and I grew up. This is where we're from. This is where both Liz and I parents uh, we're born and we're from, and that's actually where our grandparents are from. And actually, my grandparents, they lived and worked in Vancouver, particularly my grandpa. And the thing to know about him is that he worked the docks. And uh, he spent a lot of his life on the docks. And, and that's important to know because Vancouver is a city that is about the docks. It's, about a, it's all about the boats coming in. It's a port city. And so the best modern-day example or comparison I could give to the city of Ephesus is the city of Vancouver. The cultural significance of a city to Vancouver in Canada would have been akin to the cultural significance of what Ephesus was like to Rome. If you're not familiar with Vancouver, it's Canada's fourth largest city, I believe. And it is, uh, it is a powerhouse of a city. People come in there and boats come in there and there's trade and there's commerce. There's lots of immigration. And what happens is when there's lots of trade and there's lots of immigration and there's lots of uh, different... Uh, boats and people and immigration coming from all over the world, Vancouver becomes this place where all these kind of ideas, it becomes a melting pot where all these kind of ideas on religion and philosophy, thank you, I don't know if it actually works, where religion and philosophy come together, and that is sort of like what Ephesus was. Ephesus was a powerhouse of a city second only to Rome. And just like 
Vancouver, it was considered a very beautiful city. It was a port city in the ancient world. And Ephesus was a center of travel, of trade, and commerce. It was situated on the Aegean Sea in the mouth of the Castor River. And the Roman Empire made the city of Ephesus a provincial capital as it hosted around 250,000 people. That would have been the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and that's about the same population as the city of Saskatoon. Ephesus was known as a city of size and wealth and power. The major economies of the city were rooted in trade and idol worship. The temple of Artemis was located in the heart of the city, which is considered one of the seventh wonders of the world. Ocean ports, they're from ocean ports to theaters to stadiums to libraries. Ephesus had so much to offer the inhabitants of visitors. And just like Vancouver, Ephesus was a major cultural center in the ancient world. Because all these trade ships came in, and because there was so much trade and there was so much immigration, there became a pluralism in a Uh, a hodgepodge in a melting pot of different religious ideas. And so the idea is this, is that whatever happened in Ephesus kind of flowed out and spread over the rest of the Roman Empire. Can you think of a city or two in North America that's like that, where ideas and philosophy and fashion trends or whatever, or culture is made, and then it comes out to the rest of us? Anyone want to take a guess what a city like that would be? Toronto. Toronto? Okay. What about an American one? New York. New York LA. LA. Hollywood. Okay, that's sort of what, is, what, what the cultural significance of Ephesus is. And what we know is that here comes Paul. And if you don't know who Paul is, Paul is uh, a man who was originally opposed to Jesus And then he turned around and started believing in Jesus. And God told him to tell all the people outside of Israel about Jesus. And so that's what he's doing. He's going from Roman city to Roman city from Roman city, telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. And here he is, and he's staring down the city of Ephesus. And he's going to say, I'm going to plant a church there. We read about that in Acts chapter 18. It says this. Uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 19 to 20. And when they came to Ephesus, he, he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So he's going on this missionary journey, his second of three, and he winds up in the city of Ephesus and he says, you know what? I'm going to go to the local Jewish synagogue and I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And from there, he convinces a number of Jewish people about the good news of Jesus Christ and they believe, okay? And then, in true Paul fashion, he leaves, okay? He leaves for a different city, okay? Now, we read that uh, sometime after Paul left, a man named Apollos uh, comes to the scene. And I don't know if you could hit the next slide for me there. And the best way to think about Apollos is that he's kind of the Bible's version of Billy Graham, at least in the book of Acts. This guy is a trained preacher. He knows the scripture well. 
He's the best preacher of that era in terms of skill and influence. And he's telling people about Jesus. But what winds up happening is he's a little off. And so these two women who were traveling with Paul uh, when he was planting the church of Ephesus stayed in Ephesus to help the church. And they take Paul aside. And they, their names are Priscilla and Aquila. Or, and they actually explain the, the gospel more accurately to Apollos. And so Paul stays there, he spreads the news of Jesus Christ, and then he leaves. Sometime later, Paul comes back. Okay? And what we wind up seeing happen is that when he, when he does that, he, he stays there for three years. Just a quick observation I would like to make about this, and that is this you want to hit the next slide for me, is that church planting seems to be a great way to evangelize and do missions work. And I'm actually going to make the argument that in the book of Acts, it is the most effective way God has given them to spread the gospel. And I actually think that every church should consider taking a hard look, especially us, at being able to support or pray for or help uh, church planting. Now, why am I going to say that? Because some of you might be here today and you might actually be thinking, Dan, we have a problem filling the churches that we do have. Why would we plant more? What's the reason in that? And my answer to that is that uh, there is a ministry, I don't, I don't know if the audio works, uh, but there is a ministry called C2C Ministry whose goal is to plant churches across Canada. And I want you to be able to listen to what he says about what the statistics are here in Canada. Do you, can we play for that? Okay, the audio is not working. This is what he says uh, going forward. In the video, he's asked the question, why do we need more church plants? And he, he, and he cites a survey, which they did, over the last 30 years. And this is what he says. 80 to 90% of people who go to church plants are not believers. And yet, here's the crazy thing. Here, here's the crazy thing. Whereas a church, an established church, and they define established church by any church that is, uh, has been around for 15 years or longer, 60 to 70% of the people who tend an established church come from other churches. So what he is saying here is 80 to 90% of the people who attend a church plant are new believers in Jesus. And that's a crazy thing. It seems to be that church planting today in Canada is a very effective way of doing mission work and evangelism work. And yet, here's the crazy thing about this. I want to let you know about this. Less than 10% of Canadian churches financially support some sort of church planting effort. Okay? So hear this. Hear this really carefully. We have a model in Acts where they spread the gospel and they said, okay, we're going to spread the gospel and we're going to plant churches and here we are in Canada in 2022, and we're scratching our heads trying to figure out how to share the gospel of Jesus. And it seems that the Acts model works. You just plant churches. 
But the problem is, less than 10% of us, act, the churches in Canada, actually give or support or pray for a church plant, which is bad considering this. When a church does plant another church, it is five times more likely to create a church plant that is healthy and growing and, and, and evangelistic and stable as opposed to outside a church. So I just want to make that comment, is that it seems that in the book of Acts, church planting seems to be a great way to spread the gospel. And I think it's worth us considering, at least praying for or supporting in some way, even just through prayer, church plants. It is a great form of evangelism. And so this is what Paul does. He plants a church, he leaves A few years later, he comes back, and he stays in Ephesus for three years. And when he stays in Ephesus for three years, a number of crazy things happen. You can hit the next slide for me there. Is that there are some really, really weird things that happen. Number one, the Holy Spirit comes on believers, and they be able to speak in tongues. And And then on top of that, he goes into a major, major, major overdrive of teaching and spreading the gospel. He spent every day teaching and preaching in the hall of Tyrannus. So he would get up in the morning, he would go to work in the morning to support himself, and then in the off hours, he would teach publicly about the message of Jesus to everyone every day. Then supernatural healing took place, and people were set free for demons. So let me explain a little bit about what happened here a little bit so you understand. So the first thing that happens is that the Holy Spirit moves. We're told in verse 1 all the way to 7 that Paul met some disciples who were acquainted with Jesus but not totally. And this passage deserves a little bit more of a, of a uh, intense study than I could do justice today. All I'm going to say is that there was something about these disciples that prompted Paul to ask the question if they had the Holy Spirit in them. We don't have any indication that this was something that Paul normally did. But what I want you to know and catch is that there was something off about that. We don't know what. Christians and scholars have debating what that is. Some have been arguing about whether they are Christians or whether they weren't Christians. And I think that is beside the point. It is difficult to say with certainty if they were true believers of Jesus or not. But what we can say with certainty is that Paul perceived that there was a lack of something in their lives. There's something missing. And so, that, and so I would say to us that it is fair for each Christian today to consider this. That if someone were to look at their own life, would they notice an absence of the person of the Holy Spirit, of the power of the Holy Spirit in them? And so they, Paul talks about them and tells them about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And they say, we didn't even know. And so he prays for them and they get baptized and they speak in tongues. And if you're not sure what that is, that is sort of this, this spiritual gift, this supernatural ability where God gives people the ability to speak other languages. We first see it right in the book of Acts, and it's used to spread the gospel. 
So that's the very first thing, is that, is that the Holy Spirit comes in power to the people of Ephesus. And then we are told that his teaching goes into overdrive. It says in verse 8, verse 10, that he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some of them were stubborn, he left and conti- continued, and they, they left there and they decided that they would speak in the hall of Tyrannus. So what I want you to notice here is that Paul actually goes to where the people are. The first thing he does is that he goes to the Jewish synagogue and he starts reasoning with them and trying to persuade them about the message of Jesus Christ and that he is the Messiah. Okay? And so then when he when when they don't really when they when they're pushing back, he decides to leave and then he got, decides to go to this the hall of Tyrannus, which would have been this public square. And there he reasoned with the people and he tried to persuade them. And I want you to notice something about this very particular, particularly, is when he's going there, he is trying to reason with them. He is asking and answering their questions. He is going back and forth and they're asking, okay, well, what about this? And Paul's saying, okay, well, this is what this is, and this is what that is. And they are talking, and they are, he is trying to persuade them from their perspective. And I think that is very crucial because we sometimes sit around as Christians, and we ask questions that nobody is asking but us. And then we take six or ten months to explain it or answer it. And meanwhile, those around us don't even care. So, for example, are you amillennial, premillennial, you know, whatever? And the guy beside you who doesn't know Jesus is like, bro, I don't even know what that means. I'm just trying to keep my marriage from falling apart. We have to understand that what Paul does is that he goes into a place and he reasons with them on their terms. The result of that is that the message of Jesus spread throughout the entire place of Asia. Then supernatural healing took place. We are told about that in verse 11 to 12. It says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them. And the, to be honest, we don't really know how that worked, we think that it might work the same way that the shadow of Peter in Acts chapter 5 verse 15 worked in healing people or how the hem of Jesus' garment was touched in Matthew chapter 4 verse 36 might heal. The item became a point of contact by which the person was released in faith and believed in Jesus as the healer. I could imagine that this would happen by accident at first Perhaps a person was in need of healing and took a handkerchief from Paul in some sort of superstitious manner. All I need you to understand is that God is a God who is not only interested in our spiritual wounds, our emotional wounds. He's a God that's interested in our physical wounds. It seems to me that the God of the Bible is interested in healing holistically. And later we go on, and the last thing that we are told about what happens when there is a church plant is that people are set free from demons. 
says this in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that he touched the skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then there were some itinerant Jewish exorcists who undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I implore you by the name of Jesus, who Paul proclaims, come out. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Scaver were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped upon them, beat them to a pulp, overpowered them, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. In a matter, we believe that in the personality of Satan and other evil spirits as being enemies of God, God, the saints, and holy angels. And we term demons are angels that have rebelled against God, and they desire to have the glory that was due that God. And one of those beings is a name is a name by Satan. Satan is the arch enemy of God, not necessarily in power, but in in prestige. And sometimes in his ultimate issue with God is to steal the glory away from God. And sometimes that results in uh, demonic possession. And at that time, there were Jewish exorcists who practiced this trade with a lot of superstition and ceremony. And here in the text, we have a group of itinerant Jewish exorcists who tried to imitate what they thought Paul's formula was for success. And the Jewish exorcists failed because they had no personal relationship with Jesus. They only knew that Jesus was the God of Paul, not their own God. We could say that the sons of Scivia did not have the right to use the name of Jesus because there was no real personal connection they had with him. The evil spirit knew exactly who Jesus was and knew exactly who Paul was, but they didn't know who the sons of Scivia were. Apparently, evil spirits know the names of their enemies and they don't waste their effort on knowing those who aren't a threat to them. Because the seven, these sons had no relationship with Jesus, they had no spiritual uh, standing against them. They left the encounter naked and wounded. And I think it's important for us to understand that from this story there is a dangerous, there is a dangerous reality to spiritual warfare that we should not take lightly, and that is why we need Jesus. So that's what happened. He goes to plants a church, and some crazy stuff happens. People speak in tongues. He teaches. People are healed. Demons come out. It's, cra- it's a crazy thing that happens in the story of Ephesus. So then, the question is this. Why did he stay so long? Why did he stay so long in the, sto- in the city of Ephesus? I want you to listen again to what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 8 to 9. It says this, But when some became stubborn and continued to unbelief, 
speaking of the evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew for them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. There he continued for two years, and what does it say? So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, understand this, is that when he's planted it in there for two years, and all Asia heard, okay, not Ephesus, not all of Ephesus, all of Asia, all of the surrounding province. It didn't stay in the city. He goes to Ephesus. He says, I'm going to plant a church in Ephesus, a place where ideas flow out of. And he plants there and Ephesus becomes a powerhouse for the gospel. And it flows out from Ephesus all the way to the rest of, it, of Asia. All Asia heard. And here's what I want you to understand in that, is that Paul stayed there the longest out of anywhere because of the massive influence the city was going to have on culture and strategy. And he said, he looked at Ephesus and strategically thinking, he said to himself, if God can change the hearts and minds of the people of this city, it will flow out to the rest of the world. And it did. That's why it says that it's, the gospel flowed out and everyone in the province of Asia heard. And I want you to understand something very clearly that here. Ephesus went on to become a hotbed of missionary work and evangelism. A thriving powerhouse of the church existed there for decades, if not a hundred years. We know more about the church in Ephesus than any other church in the Bible. Seven of the New Testament letters were either written to or about the church of Ephesus. The preaching team, or sorry, that would include the book of Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and a mention in Revelation. The preaching team in Ephesus was legendary. You had Paul, Apollos, Timothy, and John all pastored in this church at different seasons. One of the most robust and influential church in Acts came from the first century version of Vancouver. And here's what I want you to catch, and here's why it's so important to know why Paul stayed there the longest. You want to hit the next slide for me? When we take Jesus to where the majority live, it will flow out everywhere. Understand that. When you and I look at where people think and people act and people behave today, where the majority of people live, and we take the message of Jesus, and we put it in that situation, it will flow out to everywhere in the world, and everywhere will accept, and the gospel will go everywhere out in the world, it will go out into Canada, it will go out in the United States, it will go everywhere. When you bring the gospel to where the majority of people live, think, and behave. I want you to notice something very clearly about what happens in the book of Acts. When you read the book of Acts and you're looking at all the missionary work that does that goes on there, one of the things that winds up happening is that they don't they don't willy-nilly decide to go here and here and here. 
They don't randomly pick where they're going to spread the gospel. What winds up happening is they wind up using the cities as a place of priority. Okay? Look at the book of look at Acts chapter 1. The very first spreading of the gospel happens in Jerusalem in a season in Jerusalem where the city is swelled to five times its original size. And the gospel is spread there initially. All the Jews from around the world are there. They hear the message of Jesus and they return home and the gospel goes out. Then they go to cities like Antioch and they spread the gospel there. And they, then they go to Corinth and then they spread the gospel there. Why? Because they know that everyone, whether you live in the city or live in the country, you eventually need to come into the city. And so what winds up happening is you travel in the city and you catch up on the gospel. You, ha- you hear about this and this. And then you hear about the new ideas. When you, when you spread the gospel and aim the gospel where the majority of people live, the gospel will flow out. And yet, here's the truth. The majority of where people live today has very little gospel influence. And I talk about that both in a physical sense and a philosophical sense. If you took a city like Winnipeg, or a city like Vancouver, and you mapped out the population density, and you said, you would find this, is that most of the, the closer to the cores of the city you get, the more people they are. So you would think, the more people there are, the more churches there are, right? Right? No. The closer you get to the downtown cores of the city, the less, the, the less churches there are. Where are the churches in the cities? They're on the outskirts. Why? Because that's where the cheaper land is. Okay? But most of the people are in there. And so what winds up happening is these places where the most people live don't have the mention of Jesus whatsoever. And that's not true just in a physical sense of a city. It's true philosophically as well. When where most people are asking and where most people's ideas are, we're not there. So we're not speaking into those issues and we're not spreading the gospel. And when in those most, where the majority of people are asking questions and wrestling with, and when we do that, we need to understand that the gospel will flow out. And that is why, friends, I think the book of Ephesians is so important for us today. Because the book addresses areas of life where I find the majority of Canadians live right now. Ephesus, sorry, the book of Ephesians is an amazing book and it's divided into two sections. The first three chapters deal with our worth, our identity, and our standing in Jesus. And the last three deal with how we are to live. Ephesus tells us, or Ephesians tells us, That who we are defines what we do and how we feel. Rather than the culture that we live in that tells us that the world around us defines who we are. Or how we feel defines who we are. And I think that's important. Because I think where most Canadians live today is in a crisis of identity. Don't you think? I don't hear an amen to that. I think the 
issue that most Canadians struggle with and where they live is where they find their value, their approval, and their identity. I just, uh, I just came across a really weird news article where people are paying tens of thousands of dollars to have their bones surgically grafted so that they can identify as the animal of their choice. I, it's, it's, I don't think the identity issue and social issue in our day and age is a, just a social issue or a fad. It's a gospel issue. In fact, I'm going to argue that the whole idea of a broken world has to do with the, adre- the rejection of our God-given identity. We were created in the image of God. We were created in children of God. And we rejected that. We wanted to be gods ourselves. And so the whole mess that we're in really boils down to an issue of our rejection of who God made us out to be. It's an issue on some level, I think, that we all struggle with, and I would argue that there is not a person who walked in those doors this morning who is not struggling with it on some level, even here at Manor, even if you've been a Christian for 20 years. Two years ago, I was sitting with one of our seniors at A&W, and I, I was going with coffee with him, and I, I sat down with him, and I asked him how it was going, and he welled up with tears in his eyes. And I was like, what, what was wrong? And he said, well, today I thought I'd go help out my family on the farm. And I'm like, okay, how was it? And he said, I, I broke my thumb real badly. I'm like, I'm sorry to hear that. Are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm okay. And then with tears in his eyes, he just said this. I just, I just feel like I'm in the way. Who am I? if I can't farm anymore. We might express it differently, but I believe the majority of us today live in a crisis of who we are and where our worth comes from. And when we take the message of Jesus and speak it into that issue, I believe it's going to have a similar effect on our area as taking Jesus to Ephesus had on Asia. When you bring the gospel to where the majority of the people live, think, and feel, it will flow out from there. Ephesians is telling us that we don't have to work harder or achieve more or prove ourselves to find our acceptance and love. It's already been given because of the power of Jesus. Ephesians is going to challenge us that we don't need to find our identity in our work, in our relationships, in what we achieved. You have already received that in Christ. And I think that is a message everybody needs to hear because everyone is struggling with a crisis of who we are. Amen?